Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Well, it's good to be back after having taken some time off. And I guess by the meaning of time off, I got sick like twice over Christmas break, right when I got back from Israel, which was a great trip, by the way. I hope you enjoyed listening to those two interviews I was able to get while on that trip. I did plan on trying to get a few more, but I was starting to get sick toward the end, and then it just got pretty busy, and life just doesn't turn out the way that we plan. But the Lord guides and directs as he wills, and so we were very thankful for how things turned out. It was a fantastic trip. And really enjoyed being able to benefit from Dr. Bookman. He's He's been there so many times. He's been able to teach from Scripture, ascertain the different nuances that you can glean from the land. It's just uh, incredible insight. I also really enjoyed getting to see one of my former mentors there, Dr. Barrick. He came along on the trip as well. It was just really encouraging. He was from my days at TMS, uh, one of my favorite teachers there. He and Dr. Grisanti in the Old Testament department were very influential in my own choosing to get a doctorate in the Old Testament. So that was just really cool to be able to spend time with him and, and glean from his wisdom and teaching as well. And of course, it was great to see my friends like Clayton and other uh, West students as well as staff just getting to meet them or or reacquaint myself with them. It was It was a lot of fun, so I enjoyed that immensely, as we would say. But I am thankful to be feeling better uh, my kids have also been going through a little bit of sickness the last couple of weeks, so uh, hopefully we're on the upswing now and really trying to get an episode in before the semester starts. I mean, it, this next week we're, we're starting and uh, looking forward to that. Uh, always look forward to the start of a new semester and getting to be involved with the students' lives and helping them understand some things and, of course, learning some things from them, too, as I always do during the semester. Well, today what we're going to talk about is from the book of Ruth, and this is partly because I have been meaning to do an episode on this, and then I also got a question from somebody on this over the last couple of weeks, and so I want to uh, lay this out, and basically what we're going to talk about is whether or not the marriage of Boaz and Ruth is a leverate marriage, and we'll talk about that in a second, a leverate marriage. And how that plays into the conceptualization of the story. Of course, this episode will go nicely along with our previous episodes on how to understand and interpret the Old Testament law, because there are a lot of complexities involved in this situation with Boaz and Ruth, that if you don't have a firm foundation of the law, you can't really understand how these things are in play. So I think this is going to be kind of fun to see how the book of Ruth uh, orchestrates these things out and how knowing the details really does facilitate understanding just the drama that is unfolding and how all of this takes place. Now, as a side note, uh, Ruth has a very special place in my heart. I love the book of Ruth. In fact, when we go through Old Testament survey as a class, I spend an abnormal amount of time in Ruth, uh, which, I mean, Ruth is only four chapters, but I spend a very, usually half a class period uh, on the book of Ruth, even though we're trying to cover the whole first part of the Old Testament, which doesn't, isn't really justified by size alone, but just with the narrative quality and the application both to uh, law as well as to redemptive history, Ruth has a very, very special role to play. And so we're not going to be able to do all of that justice today, obviously, but I just want to zero, on, zero in on this one issue because I think it's helpful for us to think through it. So in order to fast forward to Ruth 3 and 4, I'm going to give us just a broad survey of Ruth 1 and 2 just very quickly so that we can have... Kind of an understanding of what's going on and what we can expect once we get to Ruth 3 and 4. So many of you are probably familiar with the story. 
Ruth 1 starts out talking about the time when the judges ruled, and that should immediately give you a flashback to the book of Judges itself, and that's not a pretty picture. So if you understand that the book of Ruth is taking place during the time of the judges, you should immediately expect bad things, because the book of Judges doesn't have much to commend it. There are very few highlights in the midst of a downgrading chaos and sinfulness that is just filled with debauchery and the like, and Israel just continues to be like the Canaanites in the book of Judges. So a lot a lot is terrible about that. And so when you read the first line in the book of Ruth, you're not encouraged off the bat. You're rather discouraged because you're thinking, oh no, this is taking place during that time. What are we going to see? And so we're immediately told that there was a famine in the land, and that doesn't give us much hope or really alleviate any kind of concern about what we would expect in this book, because a famine, as we know from the curses in Deuteronomy 28, a famine is indicative of God's judgment or curse upon the land because of their sinfulness. So not not much to be positive about so far in the first verse of Ruth. We are face-to-face with sin and God's judgment and curse upon the people. Now, we're introduced to an individual by the name of Elimelech, whose name probably means my God is king, and his wife, whose name is Naomi. Now, Naomi ends up being one of the key characters in the story, but Elimelech, who has two sons, Mahlon and Kilian, are moving to Moab. They decide that the famine is not for them. And there's actually some remarkable similarities here in the story with Genesis 12, where Abram moves right after God promises to make this covenant with him and uh, promises him this land. Abram moves down to Egypt to avoid the famine. And so this seems to have some very thematic parallels with that. Obviously, Abram was not doing that out of faith, and there were some some drastic consequences, which he suffered because of that. And here, too, we can pretty much surmise that Elimelech moving his family to Moab was not done out of faith, or as his name would indicate, not done out of faith that God is his king, but rather it's a response of self-preservation trying to uh, work your way in the world and provide for yourself and rely on yourself as as such. This is also kind of complicated or perhaps furthered by the distaste that Israelites had for Moab. In fact, we're not told anybody else joined them. Of course, the text could be silent on that issue, but it's likely they were the only people from Bethlehem who went out to Moab. And this is kind of a stick in your eye, if you want to say it that way, because the Moabites had a a terrible origin story, if you want to say it that way. They are obviously born in Genesis 19 out of a incestuous relationship between Dot and his, Lot and his daughter. And the Moabites also are key and instrumental in the resistance to Israel when Israel wants to have passage through their territory coming from Egypt in Numbers 22 through 24. So the Moabites resist Israel at that key juncture. And the Moabite women specifically in Numbers 25 are said to be key players in seducing the Israelites and bringing on a punishment, which we see in Numbers 25. Of course, then in Deuteronomy 23, in the law, we see that Israel had a constitutional exclusion of Moab from the assembly of the Lord. So this was not uh, really a loving relationship between Moab. And also, if you think about it, even in the time of the judges themselves, you had Israelite oppression by Eglon, the king of Moab, in Judges 3. And so all of these factors really kind of contribute and... I don't think it's a surprise, many people are familiar with this, but I don't think it's a surprise that the narrator continues to remind everybody, the reader uh, especially, that Ruth is a Moabite. And it's it's almost her full name. It's almost as if everyone who talks about Ruth, everyone who, who is, every time she's mentioned, there's just a, a consideration of the fact that she is from Moab. And that's that's 
a important issue to the readers of the text, to those who are uh, paying attention. This is not something that's normal by any stretch of the imagination. So Ruth is is married into Elimelech's family. She marries uh, Kilian, and both Mahlon and Kilian die. Orpah is the other one who marries Mahlon. And as they progress on, and we're not told when exactly this takes place, we're told that they lived in Moab about 10 years, and we're not told if that's dating all of it together with Elimelech and the sons, or if that's after Elimelech dies. We're not told. But, so they've been in Moab at least 10 years, and then Naomi hears that there's food in Israel, so the famine is over. And by the way, uh, I mean, I'm going to take forever if I stop on every single point as we're just fast forwarding, but I would say it is an element of God's mercy that Naomi even hears there's food in Israel because there's not really a lot of travel uh, or news that takes place interchanged between Moab and Israel. It's given what we know about the Moabites and their lack of relationship with Israel, as, as we might think, it's not necessarily a given that Naomi would just find out about this um, right away. It's not like she has Twitter or watches the news or anything like that. So we understand that. So she takes a trip back to Israel. And of course, we know the story. Orpah ends up turning back, but Ruth clings to Naomi and essentially forms a a vow, a covenant with Naomi saying, I I declare myself to you. I am, I'm completely intertwined with your destiny. Now I give up my own personhood. Your people will be my people, your God, my God. So Ruth essentially declares unflinching loyalty and chesed, loving kindness to Naomi. So Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem and we are then told in Ruth 2 that Ruth, you know, wanting to take care of Naomi, she's she goes out to glean in the field. In fact, she's the one that brings it up. And in, in verse 2 of chapter 2, it says, Ruth the Moabite, remember again, being labeled there as the Moabite, says to Naomi, let me go to a field and glean. And I love how uh, verse uh, 3 says, and I always draw this out just because it's it's very redundantly uh, emphatic, well, not emphasis, you know, it's just a wild card word you say. It's redundantly hyperbolic, perhaps you could say, especially in the Hebrew. Even in even in English, uh, it kind of comes across. It says she happened to come to the part of the field. Well, in Hebrew, it says she happened to happen. You know, it, she happened to happen upon the field. And so it's just emphasizing the fact that this is completely random, wink, wink, that she happened to come to the field belonging to Boaz. Of course, of course, she she just randomly came to the field of the one who could actually take care of her family and was was a redeemer. Of course, that's we know that stuff randomly happens all the time. So in chapter two, we see the interac- interaction between Boaz and Ruth and we're both really introduced to their character. Boaz is introduced by the narrator and some of the descriptions of how he even treats, treats Ruth, how he allows the women to glean in his field. All of these are testimonies of his righteous character. So here we are getting a very, very stark contrast between what we expect in the book of, say, Judges versus what we see here. We we often s- I, I guess assume the worst, but here we're being shown that there are right there righteous few in the time of the judges uh, that exist in Israel, and by Boaz's own testimony, he talks about what Ruth had done for her mother-in-law since the death of her husband. It's all been fully told to him. In other words, the people of the town know this, and they told Boaz. So this reputation of Ruth is very, very successful. It's, it's, it's adamant about her character, even though she's a Moabite, she, everyone speaks strongly of her character. And obviously the fact that she's a Moabite doesn't matter to Boaz in the least. And so he speaks very highly of her character. So he rewards her, uh, for her character, for her sacrifice. And I think there's obviously some favor in his eye going on here. Uh, he just really wants to be kind to her. And so he gives her all of these goods. She goes home after gleaning and Naomi's in shock. You know, where'd you get all this stuff? And so 
uh, Ruth tells her, you know, I, I man, the man I worked with today was Boaz. And Naomi says uh, to Ruth in verse 20 of chapter 2, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, there's a couple observations there. Obviously, one of our redeemers, we're going to talk about the law of the re- redemption in just a second, but one of our redeemers indicates that there are more. And I think it's obvious in, in the story, actually, that Ruth and Naomi don't really know which redeemer is the closest. I don't think they're really aware of that. And I think that comes out in the story. But they understand that he is a relative, and so he does have, as part of his obligation, to take care of their family. So that is such a blessing from the Lord that that would be the case. So then we get to chapter 3, and Naomi, and this is where the drama gets starts to get really, really good in unfolding. I mean, it's been good the whole time already, right? But it starts to get really good as far as the details and how all of these things work together. And in chapter three, you have Naomi instructing Ruth on how to approach Boaz. And what she ends up telling her, Naomi, to Ruth, is that you go uncover his feet and lie down at the threshing floor because that's where men would sleep after working in the field and whatnot. And then this is what Naomi says, and he will tell you what to do. And he will tell you what to do. So that's Naomi's instruction to Ruth. So Ruth says, all right, everything you say I'm going to do. And she does it. She looks where Boaz goes to sleep. And then she creeps in there, lays down by his feet, uncovers his feet. And so he says, who in the world are you? I mean, that's this is a surprise. There's a woman laying at my feet. And so she says to him, I am Ruth, your servant. And she doesn't wait for Boaz to tell her what she should do. She says, Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So in other words, she asks him, and this is pretty much uh, an important consideration to make, is that in our marriage proposals, we don't often say spread your wings over your servant. That's not how I proposed to my wife. She probably would have rejected me if I would have done that. But I actually am, am not aware of one individual who has proposed that way. So if you are single and you want to propose, try it and let me know how that works. But this is 100% a proposal. And you know that by comparing these phrases uh, with other Old Testament uh, idioms. Uh, Ezekiel 16 is a big one. This is marriage language. So spreading your wings over your servant, she's asking him to marry her. And, you know, it's, it's some people might say, oh, Naomi probably told her to do that. That was implied in this in this whole plan, but we're not told that in the text. I mean, it's possible, certainly, it's possible that Naomi uh, told her to say these things. But we're we're given a pretty good indication of the other things that Naomi told Ruth to say, and so this seems to be Ruth going out on her own to really, and I think. Boaz understands this, which is why he says what he says later in uh, in the following verses. He understands that this is Ruth not only asking for marriage, and it's not it's not only for her benefit, but it's also for Naomi's, and that's that's important, and that's what brings up Boaz's uh, statement in verse ten, where he says this last kindness is greater than the first, in that you have not gone after anybody else, but you. In one sense, you can kind of hear Boaz saying, you're settling for me in part because of Naomi. You And, you know, I don't think Boaz was, you know, the worst, you know, he wasn't the, uh, the worst bachelor on the market or anything like that. I don't think that's necessarily true. But Boaz is understand, Boaz is adamant about the fact that he's not the best on the market. He, he says that. And so he says, this is, this is a kindness of you, Ruth, to go out, to go beyond what Naomi even told you to do and to actually offer yourself in marriage to link the Redeemer to your family. I think that's what's going on there. And the explanation, this is solidified, I think, by the explanation that she gives. She says, marry me, in essence, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a Redeemer. Now, Again, that's such an odd uh, explanation or reason for why somebody would would ask for marriage, but it's important to understand because when you think about this whole story, 
there are a couple there are a couple passages that are interlaced together and just from a commentary standpoint if you're reading through different commentaries you will see some commentaries just assume that we have uh, a couple passages namely Leviticus 25 and and Deuteronomy 25 being interplayed here but then you'll have other pa- other commentators that say well there might be some similarities but really those laws don't apply here and so there's not actually a leveret marriage or the law of the redeemer well the law of the redeemer is usually assumed because of the language the goel in hebrew is the one who's working in redemption but exactly how the leveret marriage works in here we're not really sure if that applies and furthermore i will also say this completely adamantly up front that if you look at the letter of the law if you which we will do we'll we'll read these verses in just a second just so you have them in your mind If you read the letter of the law, you will not see the situation that that is portrayed in Ruth. You won't. The situations that are covered by the letter of the law in Numbers 25 and Deuteronomy 25 are are different than what we find in the book of Ruth. Yet, yet this is the key point to understand. And if you've listened to the previous series on understanding Old Testament law, this won't be won't be too new or novel to you. But the the point is that the law is not exhaustive. The law is not meant to cover every single situation you might face. It's meant rather to function as a guideline for complex situations. I mean, situations that are easy are easy. You probably don't even need laws for that. But the more complex a situation is, the more guidance you need, the more interpollination, if you will, the the interrelationships between different law sections are going to apply. And so here in Ruth, we have a, might I say, a beautiful intersection between a couple subjects that the law deals with, and we need to kind of probe the depths, if you will, to see how they interrelate. So the first one, we need to look at is in Leviticus 25, because here it's uh, the law of redemption or the law of the redeemer. And in Leviticus 25, 25 through 30, we're told about the goel, the redeemer. And here, here's the law. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it and make some comments as we go in Leviticus 25. It says, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So there you have the the context of a a redeemer and nearest, and that's defined later on uh, in Leviticus, but it's not defined exhaustively. So we're not, we, there's no way to tell from the book of Ruth, whether Boaz or the other redeemer that is listed in Ruth four, what their relationship is to the family, because we're not told in detail what the priority is for family members. But there is obviously a priority that exists beyond what is explained even in the biblical text. So the nearest redeemer shall come and redeem it. So that it's the obligation of the one that is nearest. And that's Boaz's argument, by the way, in Ruth 3, after Ruth proposes to Boaz, he says, oh, great, I want to help you, but there's one closer. There's a, there's a nearer relative than I, there's a nearer redeemer. And so I need to deal with this because he has the right first. He has the, might we say the privilege to obey God and exercise his care for his extended family. So in verse 26, then it says, if man has no one to redeem it, then And himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it. Let him calculate the years, etc., and he can buy it back. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, uh, then in the year of Jubilee it shall be released and he shall return to his property. So in other words, he has the three options. One would be his redeemer uh, redeems it for him. In other words, the redeemer pays the price for the land so that it could be redeemed and stay with the man and he could work it and stay on it and live on it, etc. He himself could redeem it, which probably didn't happen too often, honestly, or it would revert back to his family after 50 years through the Jubilee. So those were going to be the three options. Now, if we search through the responsibility of the Goel, the Redeemer, we're also given other laws. So we just read about 
recovering a family's property because that that is actually, and I don't think I've mentioned this ever on the podcast, but having the land within a family is a very big deal. And part of it is, well, I should say the large part of it is theological because God has promised the land to the people. And so the law forbade them uh, giving up the land. And so it's important that we we understand that that's actually uh, comes up in a in many different Old Testament narratives. And here you have laws which are uh, dealing with that specifically. Well, the the Redeemer also deals with in later on in Leviticus 25 verses 47 through 55. It was the role or obligation of the Redeemer to buy the release of a kinsman from voluntary servitude entered into because of his poverty. So in other words, if a kin, if a kinsman was poor, couldn't provide for himself, had a debt he needed to owe, then he would have to sell himself into slavery, which we understand uh, without any other option, you have to pay off your debt. So he's doing that. And then the redeemer would buy him out of that. So in other words, he would pay his debt and free him from that obligation. Well, the third thing the Redeemer uh, had an obligation to do would be to receive restitution. So in other words, and this is described in part in Numbers 5, if uh, an individual dies or is unable to receive restitution, then the Redeemer, the, the close relative, stands in for that individual and receives it, the, the act of restitution. And then the fourth thing, which is really kind of interesting, if you think about it, the Redeemer is acting uh, the hand of vengeance, as, as you might think. And the kinsman would avenge, or I guess I should say the Redeemer would avenge the blood of a kinsman who was murdered. And so you you look at how this, this looks in Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 19, Joshua 20. Uh, with the cities of refuge, you have this interplay between the act of the Redeemer who's you know, trying to take care of the family and, and avenge the blood of somebody who has been murdered. And so what we see just by the survey of understanding who the Redeemer is, is that there was built into the law, the spirit of the law, if we use that phrase, a obligation for near relatives, the Redeemer, if we want to use that term, to take care of their families, that this is a very important part of the biblical picture is that we we are obligated to take care of our our relatives not just our immediate family but our our near family and that was what the israelites were to do obviously that centered around land on one on one part but it it was beyond that as well and this is where the interplay comes in because we have another passage deuteronomy 25 5 through 10 which is labeled as the leveret marriage passage. And the leveret marriage passage, uh, leveret is not related to the term Levi or anything like that. It's actually uh, from Latin, levir, which is the word for brother-in-law. And so that's where we get leveret marriage. It's, it's a Latin derivation instead of uh, anything related to biblical per se. So it's, Kind of like the word Trinity, I guess, if you want to say it that way, is that we have Trinity passages, but the word Trinity itself is not in the Bible. The word leveret itself is not in the Bible. It's just to describe Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, which talks about a brother marrying the the wife of his deceased brother. So this is what it says. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And so this is the law that the brother needs to marry his deceased brother's wife and raise up an heir to take the inheritance of his brother. Now, obviously, some people say, well, wouldn't this mean polygamy or whatever? And I don't think it's, well, here, here's, here's the issue again, is that you have to couple laws together. 
And that I think the understanding would be in this passage would be that it, it would be the brother, it would be the unmarried brother's duty to do so. And I think Merrill in his Deuteronomy talk, commentary talks a little bit about this. And I think it's a fair assumption that if, if the older brother was already married, then it would fall to the younger siblings in turn who were available or able to marry uh, the deceased brother's wife. And then their role would be to raise up offspring and heir that could inherit the the inheritance for his brother's family. So this is complicated as far as the situation is concerned in Ruth, because here the law is concerned with brothers, not with extended relatives. Although this passage deals with brothers per se, it also keeps our underlying presupposition that the law is a template. And so even though the letter of the law deals with brothers specifically, the spirit of the law definitely would apply to broader family. Now, it's actually interesting because in Ruth 3, you have Ruth in verse, when we were reading the story there, in verse uh, 9, when when she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She is saying, marry me. Because you're a redeemer. So she's putting those two laws together. Deuteronomy 25, where she's asking for marriage on behalf of uh, the brother. And it's, you might say, well, maybe she's just asking for marriage. Well, it becomes obvious later on that the laws are linked in the minds of Boaz and, and others, as we'll talk about in just a second. But this is funny because it's coming from the mouth of a Moabite. She's saying, according to Israel law, you marry me because you're a redeemer. This is this is something I'm asking you to do in fulfillment of your biblical obligation. And you might say, how does a Moabite know the law better than everybody else? You know, like what, what's going on here? But Boaz doesn't correct her. Nobody corrects her. In fact, everybody assumes that these two laws are interrelated. And so that's why we say the spirit of law is in operation here because you have... No heirs in the family of Naomi or Ruth. There's no children. And so nobody is going to carry on the family name. That That's that's an essential element for Elimelech's family. And so she's asking to be a part of that. And remember, Boaz said, you didn't have to do this. You you were a free agent of sorts. Ruth, you could, you could have gone after other individuals. But by doing this, you are you know showing your integrity, showing your righteousness. This is this is this is important. And so she does that, and then Boaz assumes that those those things are interrelated, and later on, so does the other Redeemer, and so do the witnesses. So I think that that's important to uh, recognize and observe those understandings. So that brings us to Ruth 4 now, as, as, we, as we go through that. Uh, we we kind of have the setting of all of these things going on and how these details play in. And now I think we can understand how Ruth 4 really plays out. And as we are introduced to the scene, the the last scene in the book of Ruth, Boaz goes up to the gate. That's where the business would be normally taken care of. That's where the main traffic and everyone, I mean, they didn't have cell phones. They couldn't text each other. So they would hang out at the gate. And so he's waiting for uh, this other redeemer to walk by and have a conversation in front of these wa- these witnesses. And so Boaz takes him aside in verse one, sits him down, and then he takes the elders of the city, 10 men of the elders of the city, and also has them sit down so they can have this conversation amongst witnesses, which could be verified then. Now in verse three, we're told that Boaz tells the this other redeemer that Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belongs to our relative Elimelech. Now, there's two ways to take this. I think either one's fine, but I have my uh, suspicions as to which one is correct. So on the one hand, uh, does Naomi actually own the land at this point or did they sell it? Now, it would make sense that Elimelech would have sold the land before he went to Moab. I think that is a that's a a very strong supposition and that's that would be totally fine. If that's the case, 
and some scholars have argued that that's the case, then the idea of selling the land would not be selling the land per se, but selling the right to redeem the land. So in other words, you might rephrase it saying that Naomi is giving up her her own ability to redeem the land. She can't do it. And so she disposes of her rights to this land and somebody else needs to acquire the rights to it. The redeemer needs to acquire the, the rights. That's definitely a possibility. The other possibility is that somehow Elimelech did hang on to the land and he did not sell it. Remember, this is over 10 years later, though, so I'm not sure how how likely it is that they were able to hang on to the land for over 10 years while being gone. I mean, it's definitely possible. But the, the other alternative would be that they did own the land and that Naomi was in dire straits. And so she's trying to sell the land to make money. Now, if that's the case, it doesn't actually fit the letter of the law of Leviticus 25 either, because in Leviticus 25, we're dealing with the right of redemption to land that has already been sold. Now, is that a violation of the law if uh, a redeemer buys the land from from the person uh, themselves who... You see how it doesn't exactly fit the paradigm because it, the Leviticus 25 paradigm is that Naomi should sell the land to somebody else because she's poor. And then the Redeemer comes and buys it back for her, uh, redeems it for her. That would be the Leviticus 25 paradigm. But if we take Ruth 4.3 just straight up, Naomi is selling the land to her Redeemer with no middleman. She's not selling it to anybody else. And even though that's not exactly the letter of the law for Leviticus 25, I still think it's the spirit of the law too. You're just getting to the same place you would without the middleman. So you're you're going to wind up in the same kind of situation. So either either way, I think either of those interpretations could work. I think that it's it is hard for me to imagine uh, not being in the land for ten years and still somehow managing to hold on to it. Maybe you rented it out during that time. That's a possibility. So, at the end of the day, I can see both. I'm I'm slightly, uh, I would say, just barely leaning more toward the fact that somehow they were able to hang on to the land and they they are selling it to the redeemer at this point. But but it's really. Either one is is completely possible in Ruth uh, 4.3 there, whether she's selling it straight up to the Redeemer or she's talking about the need to have it redeemed uh, by the Redeemer from somebody else that they had sold it to. Either way works. Now, when we talk about the situation itself, Boaz introduces the situation then to the Redeemer. And so he says, will you redeem the field? Are you going to obtain it? Will you redeem it? And if you don't tell me that I may, because um, I'm I'm after you basically, and I and I'll do it. So the person says I'm going to do it. Then Boaz adds this addendum in verse five, saying, "The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite." Dun dun dun! The Moabite, the wi- the widow of the dead. And now here's where he links it in, and Boaz himself links it in with Deuteronomy 25 here, by the way, with the phrase in order to pe- perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. That phrase there has a strong connection to uh, Deuteronomy 25, and so it's obvious in Boaz's mind that he sees these linked together as well. So this is this is a very a sticky situation because, well, well, here, here's here's how I would I would spell it out, is that he's painted the picture saying that listen, as the redeemer, it's your it's your obligation yet privilege because you know you have the privilege of serving the Lord, obeying His law, taking care of your family, and you also get to use the land. Well, that's a blessing for sure. Uh, you get to uh, farm its produce, etc. But uh, you also have to take with it Ruth. Uh, now, obviously, I think the Redeemer knew that Naomi was a part of the package deal, but perhaps he didn't know or he hadn't put two and two together uh, that Ruth was also a part of the deal because she was a younger widow, a part of that family as well. And so this is, it's all linked together as a package deal, not by any specific law in particular in the Old Testament, but because of the spirit of the law of wedding together this role of the Redeemer who was to take care of the family. He was to be a uh, generous, kind, uh, protecting, 
guardian for the family. And also that would include then in cases where you would have Leverett marriage-like situations, having that play into the situation as well. And so he links those together. And so at this point, the other redeemer has basically four options. On the one hand, he could, and this is, I think, important, is that he could argue that he's not legally bound to accept uh, this moral responsibility. But even though he's not legally bound, he could just go through and do what Boaz ends up doing. He could marry Ruth. He could accept the moral responsibility of the estate. He could redeem the field. He could he could follow through. And then he is basically in the place of Boaz. He could do that. Now we'll talk about in a second why he doesn't do that. But the second option would be that he could actually redeem the field and pledge to marry Ruth, but then end up not following through in marrying Ruth and just kind of kick her out uh, of the house uh, or just, you know, not deal with her. You name it. He, He could renege on his pledge. Well, the thing we need to remember here, and this is not really a possibility in this culture because the, this culture is incredibly shame honor based. And even in the New Testament, we see that as well. But in the Old Testament, similarly, this, this shows up with a shame honor culture. You are dealing with tremendous peer pressure. I mean, this this kind of pressure even involves economic pressure because it's not just, oh, you're not just being blocked on Instagram or, you know, on Twitter or whatever. No, this means this person will refuse to do business with you and their friends will refuse to do business with you because of the shameful things which you have done. And so it's just incredible because of what you've done will impact your life forever in this culture. And so... That really wouldn't be an option. You couldn't really say you were going to do something and then follow through with something this magnitude of taking care of this family in this way. So the second option really won't work at all for this redeemer. The third option would be that he could reject the offer and thereby kind of give the the opportunity to Boaz uh, himself. And that's what he ends up doing. Or he could take the responsibility of the Redeemer to take care of the field and the estate, but he could just outright reject the moral obligation to marry Ruth. So number two and four are related somewhat because it's shame honor again, is that this would be this would be very detrimental in the eyes of the Bethlehem community. We, we see that this Redeemer uh, followed through on the, on what was only profitable for him. It was, it was a very selfish act and that is not good for the society. That's not something we, we would ap- appreciate. Furthermore, this is actually very dangerous because if that other Redeemer redeemed the field or redeemed the land itself and utilized it, took care of it. And Boaz uh, followed through and married Ruth to raise up an heir for Elimelech. Then the heir would eventually claim that land back for himself. And so, and the heir would also not take too kindly for the individual not following through on his full obligation as the redeemer. So, Fourth option is also filled with difficulties, both from a shame honor as well as just from a practical standpoint, uh, the, the wealth being taken away again if the heir is raised up. So the third option ends up being the best for him is that he rejects it. And the reason he rejects it as he gives, and part of this I think may relate just to the fact that he wants to save face a little bit, but I think there may be something to this. He says in verse 6, that I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Lest I impair my own inheritance. So what's he talking about there? Somehow, some way, his inheritance would be uh, impaired. And, you know, to be to be fair, there's there's not really much certainty on this. But I think the most natural explanation would be that this child would somehow be an heir of the other redeemer's inheritance as well. So in other words, 
if this individual has a wife and children or children at this point, uh, maybe no wife, we'll see, uh, or we won't see, but uh, that's a possibility, I should say. If if he has other children and this child would somehow be added into the inheritance, then possibly that would split the inheritance in some way. And that's definitely a possibility. In fact, many commentators uh, side with this. They They note that in verses 11 and 12, you have the people blessing Boaz specifically, and the genealogy which is given suggests that the heir of this child, or I guess I should say the heir of Boaz, would have also been an inherent inherent of the other man's estate. That's definitely a possibility. I would also say that it's possible that he simply didn't want his family's inheritance to be combined with Elimelech's because if this man was not married or did not have an heir and he marries Ruth, their heir together would then be obligated to uh, have a combination of both estates if that was the only heir or if there were no other complicating factors. So it's possible that he's just trying to think ahead and say... Well, I don't want uh, there. There's too too much danger in the eyes of this other redeemer. If this would be the only heir, then our our family's estates would be combined in him, and we, you know we don't want that. We're, we don't know for sure why he's he's rejecting this, but we seem to see there's hesitancy on his part to embrace this because it's going to impair his own inheritance some way, and those are some possibilities for why that would be the case. Now, we're not told Boaz's situation is any different. In fact, we don't have to assume it is. In some sense, Boaz is obviously much more willing to uh, take one for the team, if you want to say it that way, and uh, and marry Ruth and work through work through the even complications for that. And might I say, even uh, if if it does impair his own inheritance, that's not a primary thought in his mind. And so I think that we can we can walk away with this further reinforced in our belief that Boaz is a man of integrity and upright character, righteous before God. It's just really remarkable to see how this plays out. So ultimately, they are born or a child is born to them. Uh, Obed uh, is what we're told, grandfather of David, uh, presumably He's going to carry on Ruth's first husband's name, Kilion. But something else uh, which complicates this, eh, it doesn't really complicate it, but I think that this is related. Somebody asked the question about when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, it doesn't list Elimelech or Kilion specifically. It says Boaz is the father of Obed. uh, And then you have the genealogy going through David, etc. in Matthew 1, 5, for example. So why is it that Boaz is listed if, according to the Leveret law, the child is raised up in the name of his former father, the, the, the one who died, in this case, Killian? And so here, I think it's uh, pretty self-evident that you have a situation where the family line of Boaz and the family line of Elimelech are joined together. And... I guess the way to illustrate it would be would be this way. I, I've had a couple friends who had their fathers die, and another godly man came into the family, got married, uh, and raised this child. And so, you know, not knowing them at the time, I asked them like who their dad was or something, and they don't just say, "Oh, so and so was my dad." No, what they would tell me is that, well, I have two dads: my biological dad who was such and such, and, you know, he died when I was young. So this individual, uh, my stepdad, raised me, but I call him dad because he's the, he's the only father I really knew, and he raised me, and I owe everything to him. So in one sense, it's more of a complicated answer, but they have ties to two individuals. Now, I think legally that also makes sense because assuming that Boaz is uh, – not having any other heirs or, or family, assuming he's not married, that would have been a very uh, key part of the narrative to leave out uh, if he was already married. So assuming that he's single and that he's married Ruth, this is a strong 
uh, tie-in between Boaz's family and Elimelech's family then. And so you have two families essentially uh, meeting. And so I think you find that in the discussion of Boaz. So I think it's it's very acceptable to call Obed the or the father of Obed Boaz, even though he's also technically related to Killian through the story uh, in how that that relates. Uh, last thing I'll, I'll mention about this uh, story, too, in verse seven, I know I've already been taking forever, but if you're still with me and you're still awake, props to you. In verse 7, we're told that it was the custom in former times for Israel to, in, in redeeming and exchanging, to confirm the transaction, one drew off his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So some people say, well, yeah, there's a sandal involved, but it's no relationship to the sandal that's involved in Deuteronomy 25, because in Deuteronomy 25, if a, if uh, somebody rejected the, the obligation of the lever at marriage to uh, raise up offspring for the dead, then they would uh, the the woman would take the sandal and spit in his face. And so the symbolism there is essentially, you know, the woman is being removed from the family. like this is this is shame on you. I'm spitting in your face. This is not this is not a good thing, obviously. you are shirking on your responsibility. and uh, the sandal has been brought out of the out of the family. Well, in this case, I actually think that this still applies. I mean, call me crazy. That's fine. But I think that when the sandal is being passed, I don't think it's way different than Deuteronomy 25. I just think the symbolism is matching the appropriate situation because the symbol is not going to stay the same if the situation is different. And so here the symbolism is that the right of redemption is passing from the one who should have had it to the one who's going to fulfill the obligation. And so that's why the passing of the sandal uh, takes place in this redeeming and exchanging uh, circumstance. And so I do think that there is more linkage here between Deuteronomy 25 and the story of Ruth with the law of the Leveret marriage, even though uh, Boaz is not the brother of Kilion, it's still related, uh, applicable, you might say that, through the spirit of the law instead of the letter. Likewise, in, in Leviticus 25, you have the the role of the Redeemer and all of that entails being tied into that concept. So from a bird's eye perspective, even though the letter of the law doesn't combine these two laws, you would understand the ethos of the law being that the Redeemer wants to take care of his family and he's going to do so in these situations. And so those laws are wedded together, at least conceptually. So that's my take on it anyway. Uh, you are free to disagree. And who knows, maybe you will convince me of something uh, if you send me a comment or a question or anything like that. So you can always do that, by the way. Uh, you can send me an email at peter at petergaming.com. You can also go to the Shepherd's Seminary website at shepherds.edu. You can look at my website, petergaming.com. If that is of benefit to you, till next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.